This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You scared. Scared money don't make no money. Scared money don't make money. You are listening to Inside the Tunnel, a Virginia Tech sports podcast presented by VT Scoop on 247sports.com. We are back with another episode of Inside the Tunnel. Tonight we got Doug with us. Virginia Tech defeats number 19 Wake Forest, 36-17. Doug, what a brilliant performance by Virginia Tech. Brilliant performance by Virginia Tech. Not so brilliant performance by us predicting how this game would go. Yeah, we kind of, you know, we we let the people know our true opinions. And, uh, you know, we both picked Wake Forest in this game. And look, hand raised. Uh, I was wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Doug is wrong as well. You know, it's not often. Multiple weeks we've been splitting predictions, choosing both teams and, and seeing what would happen. Um, but in, in this particular game, I felt so strongly about Wake Forest coming out and, and performing very well. I thought they were one of the best teams in the conference. Various Virginia Tech fans were saying they're completely overrated. I didn't buy, you, you know, I didn't pay attention into that. And, you know, here we are. <laughs> I mean, I think I picked them to score 39 points or something, but the way the game set up, it just worked exactly how how Justin Fuente wanted it to go. I mean, Wake Forest even won the, to- won the toss and deferred to the second half, which gave Tech the ball, right, which is, I think, one of the, what they would have done if they'd won the toss, and um, and that allowed them to to really set the tone with that first drive of the game. Yeah, so let, let's dive into this game. You mentioned it in the podcast. I didn't even think about it in the preview for Wake Forest that Virginia Tech would want to control the clock, uh, try to establish their drives, and essentially keep Wake Forest off the field offensively. And that's exactly what ended up happening. And massive credit to the Virginia Tech staff, the players, they executed well. And they had a brilliant game plan for Wake Forest, one of the teams with, you know, the number seven overall offense in the country, pushing the tempo, getting anywhere from 80-plus plays a game. And Virginia Tech comes out, first drive of the game, 19 plays, 9 minutes and 27 seconds, and points to cap it off. Yeah, that's exactly what Fuente had talked about, um, partially to – lessen the amount of time that Wake Forest can play offense when Jermaine Waller is suspended, but also just to keep, I mean, Wake Forest's offense was what scared us. I don't think as as wrong as we were, I don't think either of us was real concerned about the Wake Forest defense. So um, best way to, best way to shut down a good offense is to keep them off the field. So to come out and 19 plays, 64 yards, and you could tell that they were committed to, to, keeping that drive going because they go for it 
on fourth and short early, um, early in the game, which, I mean, I think in a normal situation, um, that's probably an Oscar Bradbird punt down inside the five, inside the 10. Um, but, you know, I think Fuente felt strongly that they had to keep that drive going and get points at, um, at the end of it. Yeah. And we got to address this defensive performance. It starts even with the first drive for Wake Forest. Yes, it's nice and all if you can establish drives and eat up the clock. There's two things, though. One, you need to be able to score points, which they were able to do. Even if it's field goals, you're putting points on the board and you're putting pressure on Wake Forest offense. The second thing is that you better have a defense capable of shutting them down because if they get on the field and they establish long drives themselves, it's just back and forth. It just turns into who will score more points at the end of the day. But Virginia Tech's defense comes in, stops Wake Forest on their first drive, and I think that's when it really started that you could see on Bud's special day, the defense was up for the challenge, and you could tell they weren't willing to get Jamie Newman in a rhythm. They they brought the pressure, and coverage on the outside was solid. Yeah, to go from a 19-play drive over – what was it nine nine minutes nine and a half minutes of game time and then force a three and out um on Wake Forest's first drive. I think the obviously the only thing that they would have wanted to do better was score a touchdown there on the first drive. But um to have the defense come up like that, Belmar got the big sack on third down, third and short, um to to get to give tech the ball back and then I think they 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 were going for the jugular there right off the right off the um start when they went to Terrius Wheatley on the pop pass that they'd they'd hid all year long and they hadn't showed it um even against Notre Dame or North Carolina when things were tight. Um they broke it out for that that one play and unfortunately fumbled it after fifty or some odd yards. But I mean that first quarter and even into the first drive of the second quarter for tech um, they really set the tone and their defense when they were on the field, which wasn't very much in that first half, came up big for them. Yeah, and, you know, this team, and Justin Fuente said it, they're not perfect. The Terrius Wheatley fumble, the Hendon Hooker going for extra yards at the end of the second quarter and fumbling the ball while he's still standing up. You know, there's little things here and there that show you that this team still has ways to go if they want to reach their ultimate potential, but... You know, at the end of the day, when you're controlling the clock for, you know, what seemed to be over 20 minutes of the of the first half, while Wake Forest is struggling to get anything going besides for really their one touchdown drive. You you know, it's a testament to the offensive game plan, the defensive game plan as well. Uh, It just all seemed to to work out for Virginia Tech in that first half. Yeah, this was, I was thinking about this in terms of like complete performance on both sides of the ball. I'm not sure what recent game, like this is the best game since, you know, maybe Florida State, but, you know, even Tech's offense in that game wasn't that efficient or anything. Um, it's been a while since Virginia Tech was able to control the game. Obviously, they didn't take control of it until the second half. Um, but defensively, 
aside from that one first half driver where they scored the touchdown, I mean, Virginia Tech had dominated this game and were still down 10 to 6. And then as that second quarter kind of moved closer to halftime, there was a, there was a, a couple possessions there where the defense had to come up with a stop. I mean, it was 10 to 6 Tech and Bradburn punted it back. Um, your boy gave him a 56 yard punt to the Wake Forest for four yard line. Um, but if Virginia Tech gives up a touchdown there, it's 17 6 late and then Wake's getting the ball coming out of the second half. So, um, they came out with, with two really big stops there to end the first half. And I do want to talk a little bit about Hendon Hooker coming back into the lineup. And, you know, I don't have all the stats in front of me and, and all the efficiencies of this offense, but there's such a clear night and day difference between having a Hendon Hooker led offense than a Ryan Willis or Quincy Patterson offense. And, you know, no disrespect to Quincy Patterson, who probably doesn't know as many plays as Hendon Hooker, but just watching the offense and how versatile it is and, you, you know, the bootlegs to the tight ends, the swing passes to the running backs, mixing in the outside game with Hazleton and Trey Turner and uh, the jet sweeps to give them the ball. It's just so versatile. It feels like there's so many options for Brad Cornelson to call plays, and it was just so much fun to watch. Yeah, it's, it's – I mean, we've seen this since Hooker's taken over. It's a complete offense Um there's really three phases of the offense. You got Hooker running the ball. You got, I guess, the traditional running game, which is, you know, McLeese and King or the jet sweeps. Um, basically anybody carrying the ball besides Hendon Hooker, but those two work hand in hand. I mean, since when Hooker's played, McLeese and the running game in general is just a whole different level. Um, and then Hooker throwing the ball has been fantastic too. So they all kind of work together and you we're kind of seeing, I mean, um, I was writing the preview for this week today and in, in the three starts that Hooker's played the whole game, Virginia Tech's lowest amount of yards is like 470 or something. Um, so it's, like we we came into this season thinking Willis was going to be the guy as the senior quarterback returning, but I think clearly with him you only get two of those phases. You get the passing game, which he was struggling in, and then the traditional McLeese-led running game, which without a threat running the ball at quarterback isn't as good, so then the whole rest of the offense gets bogged down. And with Hooker, all three of them are kind of rolling right now. So that, um, with three games to go, it's – Hooker hasn't played a bad game. I talked about that last week is like what, what, what happens when Hinden Hooker struggles and Virginia Tech's not moving the ball, um, which we still don't know. And I mean, that's a good thing that uh, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah. And I don't know if, if the traditional struggles will ever happen to Hendon Hooker, because you look at this game, Virginia Tech scores 36 points throughout the game. Hendon Hooker didn't even have a passing touchdown. You know, that's crazy to get to that point. Of course, there was turnovers and red zones and, you know, different opportunities for Virginia Tech to break on. But even Hendon Hooker, you know, he has one fumble, right? And that's considered the, the worst mistake that he can make are his pre-snap judgments whenever he misses the ball. Mm-hmm. And, and, and times when, 
you know, the ball comes out loose. Those are the worst things we've seen out of Hendon Hooker, and none of them so far have come to bite Virginia Tech. So watching him play and talking about how dynamic the offense is, there's so many avenues for Virginia Tech to use Hendon Hooker that they get him comfortable early on in the game. If he can't affect the game using his arm, all of a sudden he's running. They're using jet sweeps. They're using, you know, different types of passes that kind of set him up for the bigger ones. So there's so many ways to get him comfortable in the game. And I guess where I'm getting at is we may not see a game where Hendon Hooker struggles just because he's able to do virtually everything. Yeah, and I think you have to give a lot of credit to to Brad Cornelson and I guess we're giving a lot of credit to Jerry Kill these days too. Oh yeah. Um but for calling the plays that I mean I'm sure people still hate the play calling sometimes but he's calling these passes. I mean Hooker at the end of the day is a guy that wasn't a good enough passer to be the starting quarterback. We thought and Cornelson is calling plays that don't require him to, you know, force it into a tight window or make make throws that he's not comfortable with. I mean, they ran the ball, jet sweeps and all that stuff, and then they come out and and I think where the Virginia Tech offense really picked up is when they start hitting those little slip passes out to Dalton Keene and James Mitchell, which um, has proven. I mean, that was the play that tore up Miami too. So. Something about that play when the rest of the offense is going, it's when it's set up, it's impossible for defenses to defend and, and Cornelson calls it at the right time. So credit to him. And then, and then Hooker's just been on the money. I think in the first half, he had a couple near interceptions and he was a little high on some of those crossing routes over the middle. But other than that, um, he just looks calm and collected and, um, he, I mean, he's he's in complete control out there. And then moving on into the second half, first three drives for Virginia Tech, managed to get 17 points out of it. Uh, and the defense playing on fire, of course, you know, one of the initial drives for Wake Forest is the Sage Surratt touchdown grab after the offsides call. And look, I mean, it's Wake Forest. They still have weapons. Scotty Washington not playing. He was a, a big factor for us in, in our predictions. Not the only factor, but, you know, uh, you know, a lot of talent on that team. So Bud Foster's defense comes out fired up once again. The offense putting up points, slowly but surely chipping away. Uh, and, and then, you know, the game is really sealed off of the Taiwan Garbit uh, forced pressure. And Jamie Newman throws it up. The ball is just up in the air and slowly tumbling down. Dax Hollyfield can't catch an interception standing up this year, falling back on <laughs> both of his the past two weeks. Gets it inside the five, Hendon Hooker takes it in. At that point, I was so shocked. I mean, you're watching this entire game, and Virginia Tech is slowly pulling away in the second half. And, you know, essentially scoring 30 out of their 36 points in the second half. And I'm thinking the whole time, this whole third quarter into the fourth quarter, you know, this is Wake Forest. At any moment, they can make something happen. And Virginia Tech's defense stood strong. And I'm looking at the offense and thinking, okay, are they going to cash in with points here? And every time it seemed they did. So 
at the end of the game, the margin's so large, but it felt like such a close game for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, they kind of had the same issue they had in the first half there, early in the second half, at least in the third quarter, where they weren't, where they didn't convert for touchdowns in the red zone, you know, after that Crawford <laughs> interception, they kicked another field goal. So, like, Virginia Tech's ran off 13 points in a row at that point, but they were still only up six points, and you're, and you're looking at, you know, Newman had just hit um, Surratt for, for a touchdown, and Kendall Hinton was – was he was all over the place i forget what he finished finished with as far as his stat line so it didn't feel like it felt like virginia tech was in control much like it did in the first half but they went into the locker room losing 10 to 6 but it, and it still felt felt that way but wake forest is only down 6 until the, until we get into the fourth quarter now i do want to highlight the defense what was more impressive in your opinion the defensive line play in this game or the defensive backs? Uh, I think it was the defensive line. Uh, best game from the defensive ends in particular um, that they've had all year. Taiwan Garbett came up. Um, he had his best game. Looked like looked like we thought what we thought he was going to be for the entire year. Maybe that injury he had against Boston College kind of set him back. But he was... He was if he only finished with I think four tackles and a tackle for loss, so he didn't get any any stat credit for it. But I mean, he was always close and forcing Newman to uh, hurry up or hurry his throws. Um, Javion Beckton was in there too. That was his. I think that was really the first time he'd stood out and was getting pressure. So I mean, those guys were huge. And then the defensive tackles, they don't get a lot of, you know, numbers. They're not they're not the guy sacking the quarterback and making plays in the backfield. But if you just watch them play for four quarters, being able to rotate those four guys, Hewitt, Pollard, Kendricks, and Crawford into the game constantly, they just come at the defense the opposing offensive line for four quarters and being able to play those guys 40, 40 snaps each. I don't know what their snap totals are at the end of the day, but Tech can just roll them in for four quarters. I think by the end of the game, um, it has a big impact on the on the opposing offensive line. So, complete performance by that defensive line. Um, and I think they 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 finally got Crawford his interception. I know he was probably <laughs> will never hear the end. nobody will hear the end of it until another defensive lineman comes up with a pick. Um, so, just a big big day from them. I love the big boy turnovers. They're just honestly the best. Seeing the joy in his face, all the teammates running around him, it was awesome. He landed. He he picked that off and then landed a, a somersault or whatever it is, and just gets right back up, ready to go. He was a uh, he was quite the athlete on that play. <laughs> I do want to talk about the secondary a little bit. You take the defensive line. I completely agree with you, but just for being the devil's advocate, uh, going to talk about the secondary a little bit uh you you know heading into this game if you would have told me you have you know not in a 100 percent Caleb Farley and essentially your third string cornerback against this type of offense you know that's why I said no way and how they both stepped up Caleb Farley we've been talking about him all year 
whether or not he's hurt, he's showing that he's one of the best cornerbacks in the ACC in coverage. Yes, they didn't draw the assignment from Scotty Washington, but a, a, a ton of weapons. And then seeing Armani Chapman going up against debatably the best wide receiver in, in the conference. And yeah, sure. He let up some big, th- some big catches, but I thought he did a better job than I expected that there was a lot of plays. He contested kept Wake Forest to three and outs. The safety play I thought was the best by far all year. Divine Diablo rocking that sweet 25 Reggie Floyd was in there. Devin Hunter, not the not the best game from Chamari Connor, my boy. I'm always trying to hype him up as much as I can, but you know they were clearly targeting him on a lot of the plays with Kendall Hinton. But the safety play and having cornerbacks that were shut down and bringing back Jermaine Waller for the second half, who's coming in and playing just as he always has. And even seeing the scene of him with his helmet on at the edge of the tunnel, you know, ready to run out there with just a, you know, maybe a few minutes left in that second quarter because he was ejected for targeting so he couldn't be on the field. He's getting as close as possible at the end of the tunnel. And him coming back in there, making an impact, again, taking over and, and playing coverage on Sage Surratt. I just thought it was an incredible performance. I thought it was the most complete performance from the secondary. It's pretty wild how much better the cornerback play is this year compared to last year. Compared, like, last year feels so long ago, but it was brutal last year, and, and Farley was a part of that, and he's gotten so much better. Um, just obviously bulked up a lot, but he's just much better in coverage. They were, I mean, the whole defense was lost last season but those those corners in particular took a lot of the heat and to see the turnaround um this this year is pretty crazy I mean Waller and Farley have been two of the best corners in the in the conference all year all year long and um they're both just sophomores so you think you'll have them for hopefully at least one more year um but yeah, I think you covered it. Just a, I mean, Jamie Newman finished sixteen of thirty-five, um, and I thought the game plan that Bud Foster went to, especially in the second half, they were sending five and six blitzers on every single play, and it was it was a little bit of Bud saying, you know, we're not going to let Jamie Newman get into a rhythm by dropping eight um, and giving him time to make decisions. Um, but that's also a lot of trust in saying I think Farley and Waller have are perfectly capable of handling being on an island because you know when you bring that pressure, it's going to force a quick throw, and a lot of times that's going to be a one-on-one jump ball when um, down the field. So it was, I mean, the whole defense deserves credit, and the defensive line works hand in hand with the defensive backs and vice versa. So. Um, but I thought that was seeing as much as many blitzes as Bud Foster was calling. I think the linebackers basically just blitzed the entire second half, um, which shows you the confidence they have in the secondary right now. Yeah, absolutely. I 
100% agree with that. And I think that this was more of the vintage Bud Foster that, you know, sending so many blitzes. And, of course, everyone, you know, gave him a lot of flack last week because of the three-man rushes against Notre Dame and not being aggressive. And he comes out and (laughs) is completely aggressive against Wake Forest, trusting the guys in the back end to make plays if Jamie Newman gets the ball out and the guys don't get to the quarterback. But it was a mixture of both. It was the defensive line getting there and the guys in the back end defending well, th- as well. That shows you what the reasoning for that dropping eight strategy was against Notre Dame is for Gene Tech's quarterbacks on that particular drive included Quillen and Breon Murray. And for this game, they had Farley and Waller and Connor. They had, they had the top guys out there. So I think, I think personnel clearly dictated that driving against Notre Dame, and it dictated what what he did against Wake Forest, too. Now I want to zoom out from this game, take a step back, look at the remaining schedule, and look how we got here. Because one of the most underrated storylines of these, this entire season is the roller coaster of emotions that it's been. Now, I've been... I haven't been covering Virginia Tech as as long as everyone else in the community. You know, I've I've been here for a few years, and, you know, I've seen a lot of seasons, seen a lot go right, a lot go wrong. But this season in particular is just so intriguing to me because I've never seen it where there's so much hope in the beginning, only to be crushed by bad performances, multiple quarterback changes, bringing in an outside coach to essentially be the uh, associate head coach, I guess, for Jerry Kill, you know, making so many personnel decisions in season. And, you know, for a lot of Virginia Tech fans, you're looking at the results week by week and seeing, okay, you know, this one was bad. This one we got, you know, a little bit of improvement. But it seems like a steady slope upwards right now. That where Virginia Tech was after that Duke game, and we'll keep referencing it probably all season, to the point where they are now is just, it's incredible because this Wake Forest game was the most complete performance of the year. Yeah, it's it's funny. You talk about, I mean, a lot of the seasons that people talk about where things went horribly early are 2010 which Tech lost to Boise State by three in FedEx Field, and then they came back for, like for basically four days later and lost to JMU in the rain at Lane Stadium. 2004, they lost to USC in FedEx in a close game, and then they came back and lost to NC State on a missed field goal. Those are the two most recent examples. They started 0-2, and, and then they ripped off 10 wins both of those seasons from there. So it's it's kind of like that, but neither of those seasons, like Tech should have won that Boise State game, and a lot of people will tell you Tech should have won that USC game except for one bad call. Nobody's telling you Tech should have won that Duke game. They got stomped by Duke. And um, I look at what happened at Arkansas this year where they just fired Chad Morris after they lost to Western Kentucky 45-19. We were talking about, after that Duke game, if Justin Fuente had lost the team, if the players are willing to play, or if they'd quit 
and all that. And Arkansas is what happens or what a team looks like that quit. And Virginia Tech certainly didn't do that um, this year. So it's a little different than kind of those teams that people always reference about turning their seasons around. Um, and, yeah, you covered a lot of the craziness. I mean, we're with three games to go, and Virginia Tech has started three quarterbacks, um, <laughs> which I think if you told either of us even before the season that Virginia Tech was going to go and buy the Georgia Tech game, we'll have had three quarterbacks play, you would – you would say something has gone terribly wrong and now Virginia Tech sits at six and three with pretty much the goal that everybody was expecting the goal wasn't to you know beat Clemson or compete for the playoff the goal was let's win the Coastal and get back to the ACC championship and now it's in front of them um, with three games to go which is which is pretty insane it just absolutely blows my mind and I mean, you can point to a lot of things, and I alluded to a few of them. And Hendon Hooker, of course, we're going to keep talking. It's crazy in the beginning of the season. I made a pledge. Look, listen, Ryan Willis is the guy. He could still get it done. But there was just so many problems that stemmed from the previous year that they weren't able to get the run game going. He wasn't as sharp as he should have been. That once Hendon Hooker came in, he kind of band-aided a lot of those problems. And then you look at Jerry Kill, and all of a sudden the tight ends come back. But it's not just the offensive side of the ball. I think it's crazy the development of the defense, just multiple guys stepping up. And you saw examples of it earlier in the season. And I I, I can't point my finger to a singular reason why there was a switch. But, I mean, again, referencing that Duke game, you see the defense missing tackles. You see guys shying away from contact in the open field. And it's just crazy to me that, you know, they go to Miami, they give up a ton of yards. They almost let Miami back into the game. Um, But maybe the switch was that Miami game, making the stop at the end of the game, taking it over to North Carolina and being able to stop North Carolina in overtime, just slowly building confidence throughout the season, realizing with each game that passes that, you know, Bud Foster's not going to be here forever, and we want to do it for them. But just seeing the entire team combined together is just crazy to me. Yeah, thinking about defensively at the beginning of the season, like if you went through position by position who you were completely comfortable with as a solid starter, you probably only went to Rayshard Ashby. I mean, there was nobody on the defensive line. There was, I mean, Dax, I guess, had a lot of expectations, but even people wanted him to play Mike, so you can't really give him credit. Nobody knew if Farley was going to be improved, if Waller was ready. Um, I guess Reggie Floyd is probably the other one, and Diablo, and they've been the the weak spots up until this past week of the defense. Um, so now you look at it, and you got four defensive tackles that you feel comfortable with. I think Garbett, Garbett's performance, feel a lot better about what he's doing. Belmar's gotten much better since he was <laughs> crashing down on every single uh, fake handoff there to open the year. And then obviously we talked about um, Farley and Waller's development. So, I mean, I was listening to the Solid Verbal podcast today, and they were talking about the, 
the tech weight game and they're and they were just going back and forth about Virginia Tech going nine and three and they they called it an uncomfortable nine and three um which I think is pretty pretty accurate um but like it's uncomfortable but if you just separate what what could happen if Virginia Tech gets to nine and three like from September that would be a seven and one finish which I think that's a little more than uncomfortable um, in terms of what that would be. Yeah, it's, it's it's all crazy to me. I'm even seeing fans online, you know, before it was, would we win another ACC game from the fan perspective? And now it's like, well, if Hooker was starting against Duke, all of a sudden Virginia Tech beats Duke. If he's starting against Boston College, there's not five or six turnovers. So it's just crazy how much this team has grown. And I implore everyone really listening to really reflect on it because it's so easy to look ahead. It's so easy to look at the next matchup and say, okay, this is all we have to do. And, you know, that is Justin Fuente's mindset. Go 1-0. and Don't worry about what happened. But as as fans, as people that are invested into this program, just thinking about the changes already deserves a lot of credit to this team for sticking it out, banding together, and really buying into the culture at Virginia Tech. We heard all of last year there's a culture change, and now it finally seems like there's at least an established identity, maybe later in the season than many people hoped, but an established identity for what Virginia Tech is trying to accomplish. Yeah, Fuente talked about it today at the press conference about how after that Duke game, he basically said, I'm going back to, you know, I guess he was referencing all the changes that's, that, came out, Bacon. that yeah, it came out in that Sports Illustrated article. Um, he basically said, screw it. I'm going back to who I who I am, and, and I'll meet you on the practice field if you want to be a part of it. and. I mean, to his credit, he recognized that what he'd been doing was not working. And to the players' credit, they, I mean, they had a players only like sit down, come to Jesus meeting with Fuente about what they wanted. And after four games in September, it was clear that what they thought was going to help wasn't exactly helping. And they kind of flipped it back the other way and bought in all over again to what to what Fuente wanted to change. So uh, pretty crazy turnaround to this point. I think you also have to recognize that it could go away real quick. I mean, we talk about the turnaround, but if Miami makes an extra point after they go for two, they go up 36-35, maybe Tech loses that game. All Carolina has to do is miss an extra point. I mean, make a field goal in overtime, they win that game. So. Um, just that, I mean, but that shows you just how close the margin of error is for Virginia Tech and how they've been able to to battle through that. So, um, in terms of whether they can get to nine and three, win the coastal, I think the schedule sets up about as well as you could want with a winnable game at Georgia Tech here, and then getting Pittsburgh at home, and then obviously UVA. So. Um, it's going to be a fun three or final three weeks of the season, I think. Yeah, let's jump into that. I I think after 
each one of these games. We're really getting into crunch time. It's the last month of the season, essentially. So looking ahead is very important. It's funny just all this talk about nine and three and, you know, my mind always wanders to, to reflection, but I think in order to reflect on this whole season, we have to look ahead and, you know, the next game is Georgia Tech. They open up as 5.5 underdogs, which is a little surprising to me. I thought it would be, you know, a little higher in Tech's favor with the way that Vegas works, seeing that they just beat a ranked team uh, by nearly 20 points, uh, 19 exactly. And But to Georgia Tech's credit, they really battled with UVA last weekend, so... It looks like you yeah. and look for Virginia Tech. Justin Fuente said it today. He's 0-3 against Georgia Tech. As much as Doug and I can sit on here and and look at both these teams on paper, look last week it didn't work out when we did that. You know, on paper, Wake Forest's offense was supposed to carry the load and beat Virginia Tech on Bud Foster's day. That didn't happen. This is college football. So I think as much as both of us say. You know, Virginia Tech should easily get past Georgia Tech. I mean, it, it looks like it's going to be a close one, and Virginia Tech really can't afford to overlook Georgia Tech here. Yeah, it's one of those things, five-and-a-half-point line there from Vegas. and I mean, Vegas always knows. So it kind of feels like that kind of game going on the road to Atlanta where Fuente hasn't had much success. Um it's like I think I use the word term to describe watching Georgia Tech. They're they're surprisingly competent for what you expected them to be at this point of the transition from Paul Johnson to any kind of normal offense. Um, you know, James Graham is the former Tech commit, who I think would be starting at running back right now for Virginia Tech if he had come to Virginia Tech, but instead he's starting at quarterback for Georgia Tech. So, I mean, we'll jump into them later this week, but um, it it feels like, I mean, you look at their stats and it looks like on paper that Virginia Tech should win by three or four touchdowns. Um, but it just feels like going on the road in late November is not that simple. And I feel like there's a hump that Fuente needs to cross over because so many times there's been a disappointing result and you see the team rise to the occasion. I mean, perfect example is the Duke game and then rising to the occasion, the net, you know, against Miami when everyone counted them out on the road. And the on the flip side of that is there's been – Many examples, Old Dominion, people forget about that one. Uh, you know, the Syracuse game, games where once Virginia Tech is feeling good about themselves, they've accomplished what everyone said they couldn't, and now is the time to really, you know, keep establishing that, keep the momentum rolling. It, it's like a trap game for them. So that's why I think, you know, typically – I would go into this Georgia Tech game and say, look, yeah, Virginia Tech, like you said, three or four touchdowns, they should be winning over Georgia Tech. But, you know, this one feels different. It feels like, again, so many of these games have so much significance, but this one feels like Justin Fuente 
and his and his team really has to prove it to themselves that they can maintain their confidence even if the opponent doesn't have a ranking next to their name or you know they're struggling to find themselves and you know Georgia Tech's going to want to beat everyone they can yeah it's more it's i mean the motivation and the the message this week isn't hard to figure out it's like about validating what they did last week um to go to go to be at home and beat Wake Forest who pretty much everyone thought was the second best team in the ACC and you know win that game 30 to 7 in the second half um and now you come out and the next week you got to go on the road to a game that's not as big Georgia Tech's not as good and, and but they're still going to be playing hard and they want to win and protect um protect their home field and Virginia Tech's got to go on the road which is always tough so it's all about taking you know it's cliche but you got to go down there and take care of business and validate what you did I think clearly the coastal race and needing to win this game to continue along in the coastal race should be motivation enough but also just now that the attention is on Virginia Tech and people are paying attention I mean we were paying attention after that North Carolina game about what it meant for the coastal race that and for basically three weeks, <laughs> nobody else paid attention to Virginia tech because tech wasn't playing. Um, and UVA and UNC and all those people got credit or got all the publicity about the coastal race. And then tech shows up and st- and beats um, Wake Forest. And now they're the talk. So now you got to come back and, and, and validate that and, I think if you can beat Wake Forest at home like they did and then come out and win by two touchdowns, two or three touchdowns in Atlanta, I think a lot more people will be paying attention and a lot more people will be like, this Virginia Tech team is pretty darn good. And even further forward, Pitt's still lurking, UVA. We'll get to that UVA game, but if you had to make a confidence meter, let's say one is the toughest team remaining to three, you know, maybe not, not the easiest, but maybe the, the worst matchup for Virginia tech. How would you rate these final three opponents? I think Georgia tech's the easiest. I think UVA is in the middle. And then I think Pitt's the toughest. Um, Pitt has had tech's number for, years and years and years and um that's they've got a great defense um they don't particularly throw the ball well but i i think they're a tougher matchup than uva simply because uva has zero running game um they're one of the worst rushing teams in the country their entire offense is bryce Perkins running the football um so i think anytime you have a you're playing a team that is one-dimensional essentially that Virginia Tech can shut down their running game um, that makes it a little easier so I think Pitt even though it's a home game um, you know the I guess it's the curse of Pittsburgh um, coming back considering especially considering what they did last year um, against Virginia Tech you just I think that's the one that causes the most worry yeah I completely agree I think Pitt is by far and away the toughest team. I think UVA is kind of losing that momentum that they were carrying throughout the beginning of the season when, you know, a lot of the 
pundits and experts were projecting them to the Orange Bowl. Uh, it seems like they're slowing down a little bit with injuries and whatnot. But Pittsburgh, I feel like it doesn't matter who's wearing that jersey. They're going to be physical, in-your-face, tough. Pat Narduzzi, of course, I feel like Justin Fuente absolutely hates him. <laughs> I feel like he just hates him, to be quite honest. Uh, you know, tech fans always ranting about him and his antics on the sidelines. Very in-your-face coach, very provocative. Uh, but, yeah, you know, Pitt. And it's crazy, too. I think out of the final three opponents, the team you would most rather have inside Lane Stadium would be Pitt. Yeah, I think for sure. And, um, I mean, being able to get that team at home where with their defense, like having your offense be comfortable is obviously going to be crucial because Tech's going to have to score points to win that game, and, and I think going up to Pitt, especially in late November, not the best weather up in Pittsburgh around that time of year, and um, they don't really sell out that stadium, so it's this, like, weird environment where it's, like, freezing cold and, like, kind of loud, but also you can hear, like, everything in the stadium, so it's just a weird environment up there for Pitt, so... I mean, coming down to, to Blacksburg is definitely, um, I think that plays into Virginia Tech's hands, especially when, um, you're trying to, trying to get to that EVA game with it meaning everything. And now wrapping up here, Doug, any final words for the people? Uh, I don't think so. The one thing I did want to talk about, this goes back to kind of the game, the Wake Forest game, but Dalton Keene, blocking he is like the most like publicly obvious really good blocking tight end like you like most tight ends that are really good blockers you don't notice like it's like oh he's a blocking tight end he's the number two tight end he's he's just there to like be an extension of the offensive line but like Keen is a really good blocker and he just blows people up all day long yeah, and I think that he loves doing it, too. You could tell. Like, I, I think if it were up to him, you know, whether to catch a pass or blow someone out on the weak side, I think he would choose blowing someone up. Yeah, that that uh, little slip pass they ran to James Mitchell where it was just Keen and Mitchell all alone. And I think it was, like, number 21 for Wake Forest. Poor guy had zero chance to get off that block. And then I think Mitchell got tripped up by, you know, the, the yard line or something. Um but it was just like that's got to be a scary sight for defenses to if somebody's getting the ball in space with Dalton Keene out ahead of them. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that you know with James Shibest and being in that tight end meeting must be so much fun because they're probably looking at each other and they're they're like you're the best. No, you're the best. You're <laughs> the best. Dalton Keene probably walks into film review after a game like that and is just like on his high horse, just like. Yeah, let's let's watch this film. <laughs> he goes in knowing he's like, you're going to see it. Trust me. Third yeah. quarter, you'll see it. Yeah, every play he's like, all right, guys, pay attention to this one. <laughs> <laughs> guys, wake up, wake up. Yeah. I want to give some uh, special recognition. Can't believe it's taken me till this point. Oscar Bradburn, That's specialist true. of the week for the ACC, <laughs> averaging over 50 yards per punt, only had four punts, three of them inside the 20-yard line. And this is all coming after straining his groin. 
he's better after injury. And Which now is, he's, I think, the number two punter nationally. Um, he's, he's in the top three. Um, there's a battle there, a little game within the game for the last three weeks of the year, I think. Look, it's going to be a tough race for the Ray Guy Award. The Guy Award, I should say. Because <laughs> um, Bradburn is the guy. Do you know who the rest of the other guys are? I don't, actually. Um, Here, let me pull it up real quick. But I think... Like, we need to get somebody in there to call a shank on one of their games or something. Um, yeah, let us, kn- let us know who we should be rooting against from other teams. It's, uh, it's Braden Mann from Texas A&M. He's at 49 yards per punt. And then Max Duffy from Kentucky. And he's at, he's 48.59 yards per punt, which is .01 ahead of Oscar. Oh, man. But he, I think, they both they both played one more game, so yeah. so you know Oscar's got a chance. I think Braden McMahon or whatever his last name is. Braden um, Man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he won the Ray Guy Award last year. Maybe I could be wrong. Yeah, so he already got one. He doesn't need it. Yeah, exactly. So he should redshirt for the rest of the year, and you know, give it to Oscar. The so, so tech. So Tech needs to go up by like four touchdowns this game, and then late they'll put the the second and third stringers in, so they'll stall out at like the twenty yard line, and then they can just put Oscar in and say, "Just kick it as far as you can." <laughs> That's that is the importance of this Georgia Tech game. Yep, to go up big enough to give Oscar Bradburn more opportunities to kick in the second half. When yeah. second and third string guys come in. Yep, and just let him kick it as far as he can, not even try and the, the the gunners won't touch it until it stops rolling. Just give him every every extra yard. No touchbacks, no touchbacks. <laughs> Anyways, that'll do it for tonight. Thank you everyone so much for listening along. can run on for a long time 